0: Let's pray. Lord God, we have just heard your word read. We ask that as it is preached, that your spirit, he would go before it, that he would bring life, that he would bring repentance where it is necessary, forgiveness and healing, and Lord, that you might grow us, your people here at Christ Bible Church. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So I'll file this one under as the very easy passages to preach on. In today's current cultural climate we got gender roles we got masters and slaves what could possibly go wrong this morning paul has been laying out the new way that christians are called to live their lives and in scripture it almost always i shouldn't say always really starts internally That the war starts in your own heart, in your own mind. And it is what is going on inside of you that is then revealed by how you live and how you act. In other words, as Christ says, you know a tree by its fruit. If you want to know what the roots of the tree are, what type of tree it is, you just look at the fruits. A thorn bush brings thorns, an apple tree brings apples. You can't walk up to an apple tree and kick it and say, why won't you give me any oranges? That's not the way it works. The change has to happen on the inside. And as he's developed this idea of changing and growing, um, he he has told us that this is a process. And that is, we have to understand God's truth, we have to apply it, and then we have to live it out. Because without God's truth, without His Word, without His Spirit, we are left deaf, dumb, and blind. And so Paul has dealt with the internal realities. He's also dealt with relationships within the church. If you think back to a few weeks ago, he said, bear one another's burdens, forgive one another. He's talking about relationships within the church and how we should interact with one another. Help one another, teach one another, be willing to be taught. And then it ended with verse 17, or where we ended last week. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Everything we do, whether in word or in deed, is supposed to be done in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now that doesn't mean every time you speak you have to say in Jesus' name or in the name of the Lord or anything like that. But it's this recognition that Jesus is indeed Lord over everything and that reality is to inform everything that you do. And that's a pretty basic Christianity 101. And Paul is going to shift now from that internal change in the relationships within the church to the relationships within the family and master and slave. So when he says, whatever you do, do it recognizing that Jesus is Lord over everything. He says internally, within the church, now he's moving to the family. He's moving within these different spheres of our lives, recognizing that we have to see as Jesus is Lord over everything. And we should note here, as he's talking about family relationships and master and slave relationship, uh, and he kind of ends here with applications to different areas of life, that would have taken up All of life for just about everyone in that congregation this this is the totality of their life they have their church life and they have their life within their family or in their work relationship if they're a slave or a bond servant as well or a master and just here just as he does everywhere else uh, paul stresses the idea of the lordship of christ you will notice that in these verses the term lord is used six times Six times he talks about the Lord, and there's a seventh time, when he talks about masters, that they actually have a master in heaven. Again, referencing Jesus. So there's this idea here that as we talk about submission, as we talk about husband and wife relationships, children and parents, and masters and bond servants, that all of this is ultimately seen under the authority of Jesus Christ. Right? There's only one true ultimate authority, and it's none of those other ones besides Jesus. So these verses as I already said, are some of the most controversial uh, that we could touch on. Especially with some of the reports we had uh, coming out this last week within the church and uh, secular news agencies. Because it's about male-female relationships, submission, love, and even slavery. And it is here we have to note the influence of culture upon us as we approach a passage like this. Because often, well-meaning preachers who don't want to be misunderstood and who don't want to poke the bear as it were, will say that these, these verses here are culturally bound. That Paul is just reiterating what the culture of his time believed and it's not therefore binding upon you and me. And this ignores quite plainly that all Scripture was written in the cultural context. But all Scripture and its truths are universal. If you're going to do that here, you can do it anywhere in Scripture if you want to. It also ignores that the fact that we know of many such household codes written by Greeks and Romans as to how the household was going to function and if you compare it to Pauls Paul is most definitely intentionally poking the bear. He's not just affirming the cultural trends of his time, he's actually rewriting them and telling them that they're wrong. So he was being intentionally countercultural. Scripture transcends culture, and it stands in judgment over culture, whether that be first-century Rome or modern-day America. And that is what is often missing in this cultural argument, is that we fail to realize that we are just applying modern cultural standards to Scripture to judge Scripture, with no thought is given to where those standards come from and where they are going. If popular opinion is your standard by which you're going to judge Scripture, you're going to constantly be shifting. For example, in the 1800s, popular culture supported slavery. Now, it doesn't, thankfully. But we don't know what popular culture will say is right in 50 and 100 years. You just don't know. And you can't let culture be the standard by which you judge the eternal Word of God. It's a terribly unstable foundation for judgment. And that's where we find ourselves in our moment today with these controversial verses. Our current moment wants to stand in judgment over Scripture. Even though our moment today will say on the one hand, there's no such thing as absolute right or wrong. And they also would say cultures shouldn't judge other cultures. They also want to say that Scripture is wrong and that the culture of Scripture is evil. On the other hand, the hypocrisy should be astounding to you. We don't judge any cultures, except for that culture. We judge that one. That one's bad. And so we must consider a few cultural pressures today that influence us. Because we are all all in a culture, and they will put pressures upon us to shrink back from what Scripture says. Ideas have consequences, and we didn't arrive in our current moment of absurdity overnight. How we can now today say on the one hand that we believe in science, but on the other hand we don't know what a man or a woman is. Those things don't happen overnight. They happen as ideas are logically worked out and arguments are brought to their natural end. And how we handle passages like this today will often reflect how much of the lies we have swallowed as the church. So what I'm going to do here is something I don't normally do I'm going to spend way too much time on the introduction. I want you to understand how feminism has impacted us today. In particular, how it impacts how we understand uh, this passage. To deny and how feminism has actually led to this odd uh, moment of our time where we basically deny that women exist at all. Right, you're seeing that fruit. How did we get there? And there are some feminists today who are going, hold on, wait a minute, there is such a thing as a woman. But they're actually the minority in that movement. And we should pause for a moment and ask, how did we get here? And it's because feminism and its uh, cohort, egalitarianism, have wrecked a lot of havoc on families and society and even churches. So contrary to what the woke mob will tell you, we do not, in any measurable way, live in the patriarchy today. That's just a lie, that's just old. Just about every measurable standard from every sociological study will show you that by far, men are doing far worse in our culture than women are today, especially young men. It's not even debatable. The war on manhood and masculinity, comes from the pit of hell and from a deep loathing of our Creator. Stat after stat tells us that young men are not doing well. And as others have noted, our society, even and especially within the church, has become extremely chickified. Right? The virtues that are held up as good tend to be more feminine virtues, and masculine virtues are looked at as sub-Christian. That's not how Jesus would have acted. Well, Jesus was a man. In fact, he was a first century man who was probably a whole lot more brash than the average Christian man today. And while there is certainly ways to be sinfully masculine and sinfully feminine, masculinity is not inherently toxic. It is a good thing which we are desperately short on today. Christ's Bible Church wants masculine men here. We want to raise up the next generation of masculine men here. So that sign up back there for the men's study, we're going to be looking at Future Men. It's a book on how do we understand manhood biblically and how do we as Families, fathers, grandfathers, raise up the next generation of men. That's the need of the moment. So I invite you, men, teenagers, um, come, join that discussion. It will be important. But we need to examine the lies that we have swallowed that have led us to this point. Because both feminine and masculine virtues are godly, and the family and society and the church desperately need both. It needs both because that is how God has designed the world to function. It is not good that man should be alone. If you put a bunch of men together, as I've said many times, when you go to male dorms on Christian campuses, you find more and more examples of just sheer stupidity over and over again. If you want to know what stupidity looks like in the young male's mind, go see young Christian dorm rooms. I saw this one guys were jumping out of a third floor window using their mattresses all the way down to the ground. But that's boy life. That's what we do. The lie of egalitarianism is this, this is one that we have swallowed, that equality must be found in the equal distribution of power and equal outcomes. That we are not equal unless we are all the same. But here's the problem. We will never all be the same. There will always be people who are better at certain things than you. As I grew up as a kid, as a tall, lanky, awkward young man, I wanted to play in the NBA. But there are always people way better at basketball than I ever was. Someone will always be richer. Someone will always have more power. Someone will always be better looking than you. Someone will always be more successful than you. Egalitarianism says that we must tear down all structures of power in all hierarchies. But this is impossible. The, wor- the world has been designed to function on hierarchies. There will always be rulers. There will always be elites. Like This, this, should, this should cause you to pause. The very movement in our society today that says we need to get rid of all hierarchies is the most elitist movement you have seen. You can't escape it. It's how the world functions. And this is true. um, This is true despite what egalitarianism says. And you can see the horrors of that worldview worked out throughout world history. The problem is not that some have more powers than others. And so the, the solution is not to seek to empower a more people. The problem is sinful rebellion against the true authority, who is God. To put it plainly, hierarchies can be good or bad. They can be either a blessing or a curse. But they will always be. And feminism stands on this assumption that equality means sameness in everything. Equality, in the best sense, the biblical sense, the sense that has built the most prosperous and equal society to ever exist, means a basic fairness of judgment, a fairness under the law. That kind of equality the Bible not only supports, but commands. Much of modern feminism, though, rejects this. So I want to dive very quickly into this for a moment. Depending on who you believe, there are either three or four waves of feminism. All right, and there's some good sprinkled in there, and there's also some bad. And we're going to do a very mile-high overview of it here. The first wave of feminism sprung out of the church and led to things like women's rights to vote. And it then, after women got the right to vote, it led to things like prohibition. There is much in that first wave that was very good, that was very necessary, and even biblical. There's a reason why it came out of the church. That movement is roughly viewed as coming from the 1840s to lasting to about 1920. The second wave of feminism started in 1963 and lasted to approximately the 1980s. This wave of feminism was launched with the book by Betty Friedan known as The Feminine Mystique. I've never read it. I have no desire to. But whereas the first wave sought equal rights for women, which is a good, the second wave sought a different definition of equality, one that eroded all distinctions between men and women. They argued that women, to be truly free, had to be measured according to the standard of men in society, and so they had to become more like men to be free and to be equal. So, to be truly equal, they had to be able to not have children, i.e. abortion. This is a women's rights issue because they have to be free and equal with men. They have to be able to not have children, just like men. Sameness equals freedom and equality. Roles and distinctions were argued at, or were labeled as oppressive. Women can do everything men can do, just as good as they can do, just as good as men can do it, or, or vice versa. This again, every study and every personal experience, it will tell you is just not true. This is why we're having trouble with women's sports right now and transgenderism. Men, in general, are better at physical activities like sports than women are. This shouldn't be that controversial. The second wave feminist of that age had a stereotype, and that stereotype was the uh, butch-haired, butch-short-haired lesbian woman. That should tell you the ideas that were underneath that. They denied that there was any functional difference between men and women. Now you need to hear this. It is only one step of difference from there is no functional difference between men and women to that there is no difference between men and women and you can just switch whenever you want. It's all just culturally determined. Feminism has led to transgenderism. It shouldn't even be debatable at this point. Ideas have consequences. I won't talk much about the third or fourth wave of feminism. A third wave of feminism, the stereotype of that, you could think of of the empowered, sexy woman who can do everything. The first icon of that would have been Princess Leia in Star Wars. Every bit as good as the man in, in everything, she can carry a blaster or whatever it is and shoot just as many stormtroopers as the guys can. Fourth wave, again, there's a debate whether or not it actually exists or we're still in the third wave. But Let me state this clearly. Feminism has sought since the second wave on to measure women and their worth by the standards of men. To be worthwhile, women had to become more like their male counterparts. And if you deny the beauty of femininity and want to make women more like men, then I argue that it is you who hate women and not me. If you think that the thing that most sets women apart from men, and this doesn't mean this is all women are, but to have children is a burden and an oppressive thing that you need to overcome, then perhaps it is you who hate women and not me. And I will stand and die by that statement. This long, overly long introduction is to help you and me interpret this text rightly. Because you and me will mostly, all of us sitting here, will say, oh yeah, yeah, that's dumb. Abortion's dumb. Transgenderism is dumb. But then we talk about roles and functions and we say, "Whoa!" Well, you know, the Bible makes me a little uncomfortable there. Are you being more influenced by Scripture or by culture? So let's dive into this. How does the Lordship of Christ work itself out in the home? And how should we as husbands, wives, children, and those involved in the economy live as unto the Lord, as this passage says? So Paul starts with husbands and wives, the bedrock of the human race and society. He writes, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. He gives specific instructions here to both spouses that apply to their specific roles within the family unit. And these are echoed, as I read um, in Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul gives a more drawn out explanation of these things. He says, these things, the relationship between the husband and the wife, represents Christ in the church and that this is a deep and profound mystery. To put it another way, one of the intentions God had by making male and female, and that they would be united in marriage and become one flesh, was to picture on earth the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's one of the main reasons why he made this relationship the way that it is. And so he does not say, Paul does not say here that your marriage should picture the gospel, but rather that that relationship inherently does picture the gospel. There's an important distinction there. It is the function of how God created marriage and the one flesh union. This is why Christians, from the beginning of our religion, and Jews before that, why sexual immorality and perversion are always a big deal. Because they, they corrupt the picture of the gospel that God has given us. This is why so-called gay marriage is in a direct attack upon God's own preaching of his gospel. As we can never compromise on it. Closer to home, your marriage pictures the gospel if you are married here today. And the only question is this, is your marriage declaring the true gospel or a false gospel by how you are living it out? Every marriage is saying something about Christ and the church. What is your marriage saying? And Is it preaching a faithful message or a demented one? And if we're honest, I think we can say, by and large, the church in America is not doing very well at this point. Paul says that women are to, quote, submit to their husbands as is fitting in the Lord. That is, there is an inherent authority in leadership in being a husband. Husbands, you will largely determine the direction of your family through your rule or through your absence. Through your loving care of your family or through being a lazy bum? That is inescapable. The the absence of fathers and husbands from the home leads to trouble after trouble for children. One of the single greatest things that studies find that divides success from, not success, is having a father in the home. This is how God has designed the world. Fathers, either by being there or not being there, are going to direct their home. Like all authority in life, the authority of the husband and the father is a derived and a dependent authority. That means his authority comes from God and is therefore limited by God. Husbands, you don't get to do whatever you want. You must submit to me. In fact, if you ever have to say to your wife, you must submit to me, you're probably doing it wrong. If you think that the call to lead your, your wife is a call to never listen to her or to take her wisdom in and her advice, then you're a fool. You're probably not ready to be married, but you're probably married already, so it's too late for that. (laughs) And so she is called to submit to him in the Lord, and that really cuts two ways here. First, that submission following the lead of your husband, and again, that does not mean never saying anything. Never saying, "Hey, honey, did you think about this?" Oh no, I didn't think about that. That's that's a great idea, but it is the default, and it is good. Second, it also means if it ever comes to obeying God or your husband, the wife must obey God every single time. All authority in this world is derived and dependent upon the one true authority, who is God. Anybody who has a position of authority, who then starts to govern or use that authority apart from God's design, has lost that authority. That is how things work. We should also note, that this is not, women, you, you really need to hear this, this is not an instruction for all women to submit to all men. This is not a call for all women to submit to all men. There are evil and wicked men out there and they have no claim to authority over you. A woman is only bound to submit to those in legitimate authority and in this context, it is that of her husband. So young, men, young women... It is therefore of paramount importance that you find a good, godly man you can happily submit to and respect. If he's unrespectable now, it's probably not going to change. The call here in Colossians and Ephesians is for women to submit to their husbands and to respect them. Why? Because men thrive and live on respect, and wives, through their words, will either strengthen their husbands or they will tear him down and undermine him. Wives possess a tremendous amount of power over their husbands to either help them or to hurt them. Or as the book of Proverbs puts it this way, it says it is better to live in the desert than with a quarrelsome and a nagging wife. Literally, it's better for you to be stranded with no water out in the desert, in the wilderness, than to be stuck with a quarrelsome and nagging wife. Now, we could say the same thing about a terrible husband. It cuts both ways. But young men, this means you need to find a godly woman who will respect you and submit to you. If she is unwilling to respect you, because she does not submit to you before you're married, if she's unwilling to respect you before you're married, she's probably not going to change. Take that into account. The command to husbands here are twofold. Love your wife and do not be harsh with her. Wives need the love of their husbands, And when husbands love their wives as Christ loves the church in a sacrificial way, she will most often flourish and thrive. She will become like a crown upon your head, a crown of glory upon the head of her husband. Conversely, those in leadership need to lead well, and this means they need to not be tyrants. So we we have to say this very, very clearly. If you hate tyranny in the government, make sure you're not a little tyrant in your own home. Don't be a hypocrite. Your wife is a gift from God. She is not your slave. She is your equal before God. Both were made in God's image. Both have equal worth and value and rights before God. And God warns us through here as men that we can at times become overly harsh with our wives. It's a real temptation. Don't be that guy. Don't, men, treat your wife like you would one of the guys. When guys get together, again, sometimes stupidity reigns, but also we're sarcastic. We're cutting each other down. We're poking each other. We 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 hit each other. I I see this with my boys all the time. They're just physically. I just got to hit something. something, Somebody's got to grab something. But women are different. You do not treat your wife like you would just one of the guys. Your words to her need to be a whole different category of words. Your wife needs to know, husbands, that you love her first and foremost. And that you genuinely, genuinely are seeking both her good and the good of your family. That's what leadership is about. Serving others. It includes actually leading them, but you must actually be seeking their good. Husbands, it is your job to imitate Christ in this relationship. To be patient and to be self-sacrificing. And here I need to borrow a point from a fellow pastor. Especially as our culture pushes us to explain away these parts that we don't like. Husbands, wives, listen closely here. God does not command husbands to only love their wives when she is being lovable. I love my wife when she's sweet. When she's not, nah, not so much. No, it's the default. You are to love your wives. Likewise, wives, the command to respect your husbands is not limited to when he is being respectable. It's the default. Again, rare occasions. There are times where sin reigns and God allows for for drastic actions to be taken. But Lord willing, for most of us, that will not be our experience. All of this, husbands loving and leading well, wives respecting and submitting well, flows from the new humanity that Christ has bought us through his death and resurrection. He is the Lord over all and he has handed out our assignments and they are good. And he says he will judge both husbands and wives for how they act. The hierarchy has a top, and it's not you, it's Jesus. Where we find sacrificial husbands loving well, and wives following and respecting those husbands, the gospel goes forward in sweetness in the home. And now, some of you are surely wondering, but Pastor Levi, this is hard. And Pastor Levi, I've already failed miserably at this. What now? This is the good news of the gospel. God is gracious. God not only gives us instruction of how to live, but he also offers forgiveness. He sent us Christ because he knows that none of us will do this perfectly. You need grace. And where you have fallen short, repent, go to him. It's never too late. And start afresh God's way. God's grace is greater than our sin. Paul then moves on to the relationship between fathers and children. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. See, the difference um, between Paul's instructions here and in the common Gre- Greco Roman household codes is generally in those, it was just the husband, the father, he got to do whatever he wanted. Everyone else had to listen to him. Here, there's instructions for the fathers all over the place. Like, hey, you have to do these things. The parallel passage is in Ephesians. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. So this command really should be applied to both the parents, husband, husband our mother and father. And children, the command to you comes with a promise that if you obey your parents, that you may live long and prosper in the land. There's a general um, promise given to you there. And one of the sad things of our day is that parenting movements, many of them will teach you that it's the inclination, the natural inclination of the child that is paramount. That you should defer to your children. The Bible says that folly, or folly, folly, yeah, that's a that's a cheetah. Anyways, uh, folly is bound up in the heart of a child, and that the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Parents are not oppressive. The state or government school is not a better place for children than their home. That has no statement as to where you educate your children. But there's a movement out there that that says we need to save children from their parents and put them in, become wards of the state. Think about how backwards that is. All throughout human history, we looked at wards of the state, orphanages as, man, wouldn't somebody be kind to get them out of that so they had a real family? Now they're trying to tell you that the family's the problem and the state's the solution. Good luck with that one. Our day suffers for a lack of discipline of children. The authority of parents is not oppressive, but it is a life-giving resource. And so children, if you want life, if you want blessing, obey your parents. But there's also instruction for the parents. Your job is not to raise your children however you want or however you think is best or however your parents raised you but you are to raise them in the fear and the knowledge of the Lord. You cannot outsource that job to pastors, to schools, or to Sunday school teachers, or the state. It is your job to see that your children are well educated, and that he or she learns about the Lord. Now the church is there to help you. The church is there to provide resources, to equip you, to provide Sunday schools. There are schools you can send your children to, but as your parent, you are the head of that to make those decisions. What is best for my child in this situation? The buck stops with you, not your local school board. Another warning here is given to parents that they not be harsh and to not provoke their children to anger. Sometimes when we engage in discipline, which is necessary, it can become erratic and which will often frustrate our kids because they don't know when they'll get disciplined and when they won't. Or it can become reactionary that only when this is really, really bothering me and I've had enough, then I will discipline my children. And we can be harsh. Discipling our kids requires patience and self-control. And thus, if we're not doing that, our discipline becomes counterproductive, especially if we ever demand perfection from our children which they won't ever achieve, which we don't have. Or if we are overly controlling in helicopter parents, we can exasperate our children. You cannot control everything, mom and dad, because you're not God. Only God can do that. And if you don't let your kids take some responsibility, if you don't let them fall down and learn how to pick themselves back up, then you are doing them a great disservice. Paul then shifts to bond servants, Some of your translations may say slaves and their relationship with their masters. Verses 22 through 23. Bondservants, Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. There's a lot going on here (laughs) and I've left myself so little time to explain what's going on here. But God commands bondservants here to obey their masters. But at the same time, you'll notice that the term Lord appears here more than anywhere else in the section, these verses here and those that follow, because he's also undermining the authority of the masters of those bondservants. They actually, the bondservants don't actually work for their masters, they're actually working for the Lord, not the house they belong to. Bondservants is the translation. And a much English, uh, many English translators make that distinction um, and not use the word slave because there is a difference between Roman slavery and slavery as it was practiced in the West. And these, and these differences are not minor. They are important. Roman slavery was primarily either over conquered people but even more so indentured servitude. That is, it was not based upon racial ideas. In fact, the idea of race that we used today, didn't come about until about the 1500s, as it were. In the case of indentured servitude, it was an economic agreement where someone would enter into it, basically as a social safety net. There was nothing else they could do to survive. And so they would attach themselves to a family. But don't get me wrong, it was not good for the bond servants, and for the most part, but it was better than the alternative. And there were definitely good masters, but there were also very evil and wicked masters. And so the accusation often comes that the Bible, in some form, supported slavery. And we can say this for certain. The Bible provides guidelines for the practice of indentured servitude. But, both in the Old Testament and in the New, it forbids, by the pain of death and of eternal damnation, man-stealing. You can look in the Old Testament, you can look in the New. Death penalty if you steal someone and sell them into slavery. The book of Revelation says that those people who do that will be thrown into the eternal fire. So slavery as we know it in America, the transatlantic slave trade was roundly condemned by Scripture. You don't get to steal a free man and sell him into slavery. That's damnable. Full stop. So The Bible commends freedom, but it also tells slaves to get their freedom if they can. If you find yourself as a bondservant in the Greco-Roman world and you have a chance to get your freedom, the Bible says do it. Do it now. And what we fail to realize is that slavery has been pervasive throughout human history. Up until recently, every society has practiced it. We like to think that, oh, it was only America who practiced slavery. No, no. Every society practiced some form of slavery. But what is unique in world history is that the Christian West not once, but twice eradicated slavery. It eradicated the Roman system of slavery while it was still raging around the world. That eventually led into feudalism, and then slavery came back through the transatlantic slave trade, and it was, again, the West who ended it. You can scour the pages of world history, and you will not find any other civilization that has ended slavery once, let alone twice. And that should be noted. Why is that so? Because the Bible provides the framework for equality under the law. It provides the foundation for human rights and human freedom that you and I take for granted and that we take for granted and then wonder how slavery was ever possible because that's all the world had ever really done. And we fail to realize that it was Christianity that has led to the end of slavery in the West, even though it's still practiced throughout much of the world today. If Darwin is correct, and the ethic of this universe is survival of the fittest, then slavery makes sense. That's point blank the truth. The closest thing, if you want to think about what is indentured servitude like today, the closest thing we have to indentured servitude today is enlisting in the military. When you enlist in the military, they give you certain rights, but you lose certain rights. The state and the military now owns you for a certain period of time. But they will pay for your education, they'll pay for your food and your lodgings, but you have to do whatever it is they tell you to do. That is very close to what indentured servitude was like in the Roman Empire, with much less checks and balances on the power. The most obvious application of these verses for you and me today is for us in the workforce. That we are to work not as we are working for men, not as we are working for our company, not as we are working for our bosses, but as for the Lord. Christ's lordship reigns supreme over all of life and it must inform how we live, even in the public sphere of work. We have one last section here. Paul ends this section with both warnings and promises. And all of them, again, are tied to Jesus being Lord over all. Look at verse 24. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Throughout the passage, the Lord is mentioned here, and that we are to obey him and submit to him and to do these things because Christ is the Lord over all. Christianity doesn't tear down these distinctions, it doesn't rage against hierarchies to find equality but rather it establishes our equality before God as judge. He says there's no partiality here. If you think you're going to get off masters because you're the master and they're the slave and you can do whatever you want, he says, nope, that's not how it works. We would reverse that today. If you, if you think that you are an oppressed person and you can do whatever you want, the Lord judges without partiality. He says, nope, you are still held to the same standard. And so we have here God telling husbands, parents, masters, and servants, that they will all be judged by the same God and by the same standard. He flattens us all out before God. You're all equal before God. And that is the fundamental equality of the human race. Is that Christ is Lord over all. And it is that which eventually led to the overthrow of slavery. For all men are created equal and they're endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights. If there is no creator, then you have no inalienable rights. The warning he gives to us all here is this. God is the true Lord. He is the true master. And he will fairly and impartially judge everyone. Husbands, wives, children, slaves, and masters. And you will not get off just because of the, of the identity group that you are in. But he also gives a promise. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward because you are serving the Lord Christ as we live under the Lordship of Christ as fathers as mothers as children as husbands as wives as bosses as, and as workers and so much more God will reward you he is bringing an eternal inheritance that is his kingdom and that is to motivate you to live a certain way in this life and so this, is, this, again, is the call of all of Christ for all of life, to submit our hearts and our minds to the Lord over everything. Know that what we do, whether in word and deed, we are to do as unto the Lord. So you can follow, you can obey, and you can lead, and you can submit unto his glory. And when you do, you reflect the gospel. You reflect a life that has been ransomed by the blood of Christ and empowered by the Spirit and built upon the Word. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are the God who has spoken to us, that you have not left us without instruction, you have not left us without revelation, that we might see your truth, we might see your Word, Lord, and as the conviction falls upon us, that we might be renewed. We might repent of our sins and walk in faith. So again, Lord, I ask for the husbands and the wives of this congregation, the fathers, the mothers, the children, the bosses, the employees, Lord, that they would do all of these roles as unto you. That they would not do it for the eyes of men. They would not do it for some social movement or some social statement but that they would see that Christ is Lord over all and that he instructs us how to live throughout our whole life. It's in his name we pray. Amen.